Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we will guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Did you know that one kilogram of uranium is able to produce 24 million kilowatt hours of electricity through the process of nuclear fission? And because uranium is a heavy metal, one kilogram is actually a very small amount. So if my kid's Play-Doh bucket here were full of uranium, that would be about one kilogram, roughly, about a quarter cup. That, is, uh, that much energy produced is my house's solar electricity system running at peak generating capacity. Top sun, no clouds, the whole day for one million days. That much uranium. In World War II, the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in Japan and had 56 kilograms of uranium in it, but less than one kilogram of it was used to detonate the bomb. Roughly 750 milligrams is the estimate. That bomb completely destroyed everything within 13 square kilometers in Hiroshima. That is roughly the size of the entire Darwin CBD and its surrounding suburbs all the way up to Fanny Bay. The blast killed approximately the same number as the population of Darwin. That is how much this tiny amount of uranium can do. Things with enormous power aren't always big. And that's what James wants us to grasp about the tongue in this passage. Even though it is small, it has enormous power that can be used for good or for bad. Life or death. For most of us, I'm sure that with just a few minutes of thought, we can readily identify the truth of what James is saying here. Can you think of words that were instrumental in your life 
in setting you straight or putting you on a good path or words that were helpful to you in, in, in your darkest night? Or can you think of words that have deeply wounded you in such a way that the impression of them is something that you still carry around today? Can you think of relationships that you have wounded or perhaps that you have even ruined because of your words? What words do you say to yourself that remain destructive for your own soul? Most of us are probably familiar with the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But it doesn't take long to realize that that phrase has got it completely wrong. It is totally backwards. More often than not, physical wounds heal far more quickly than the wounds that have been caused by words. In this morning's passage, James makes one very clear point. Do not, do not underestimate the power of the tongue. And James applies that point to two groups of people. Teachers, as in teachers of the word, and everyone else. So with Bibles open, with hearts ready, with notebooks open, and with tongues tamed, a little bit easier with masks this morning, let's hear what James has to say. I have three points for you this morning, beginning with verse 1, and considering what he has to say to teachers. So, point one, the tongue trial of teachers. I tried to get tongue twist in there somehow, but it didn't really work. The tongue trial of teachers. You might remember last week, James's focus was on faith that produces good works. James has been showing us right from the beginning of the letter what true religion and what true faith looks like. And he continues that in this passage by first addressing the teachers of the word. Let's read verse 1, if you've got your Bibles in front of you there. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In the last few passages that we've looked at, James has given his purpose statement for the passage in the very first sentence. He said what he's going to talk about over the next few verses. For that reason, it's tempting to think that that is what, we, what he's doing here. And, by and large, I think that that is actually generally correct. Even though James quite clearly pivots to addressing everybody from verse 2, what he's about to say in this passage that we're looking at and what he's about to say about the tongue applies to an even higher degree to those who teach the word. And this makes sense. Teachers of the word use lots of words. And not only do they use lots of words, their words are usually given more weight. Now, this is generally true about teachers. When you were in school, uh, I imagine you tended to believe what your teachers said about a certain topic more than what your friend next to you uh, said about a certain thing. Unless, of course, they were a genius or something. And that's uh, because teachers, you know, have studied a lot. They, they know their material. They know what they're talking about. So they're given weighty authority in that. 
But you see, this is especially true for teachers in church. That's because teachers in church are teaching the very Word of God. What we are doing is not just uh, uh, sharing with you things that we have learned, sharing with you things that, that, that we know, that we you know, have studied and looked into. The authority is not just coming from what I might know. As teachers of the Word, what we are doing is leaning on divine authority. And it is for this very reason that James issues this warning. Because anybody who stands up here or any of our elders or whoever it is that is telling you this is what God says from the Bible is, is invoking the authority of God in the words that they are saying. And so as the eighth Spider-Man film in 20 years has once again reminded us, everybody now, with great power comes great responsibility. If you're teaching the Word of God, you are claiming to speak on His behalf. As I've told many of you before, this is one of the reasons why I had to do some hard reflecting on whether I should continue in pastoral ministry. When it dawned on me that I did not sufficiently fear what I was doing when I was getting up and telling people, this is what God himself is saying to you today, I realized that I was not taking my responsibility seriously enough and had to check my own heart to see whether my motives and my appreciation for the weight of teaching the word of God was in line with his design. My attitude was a far cry from John Knox's, who was the firebrand pastor and spearhead of the Scottish Reformation in the 1500s. He apparently once said, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. Obviously, I'm, I'm here today, so I've resolved that question but it's one that I am constantly reflecting on. It's not one that I say, oh yeah, I've dealt with that, and now I'm good. Brothers and sisters, if this feels a little bit too melodramatic, read the verse again. James is not mincing words here. He is actively discouraging people from teaching the word because he knows that their words will be held to a higher account, a higher judgment. Now, just as a brief side note, I think James is here likely addressing the office of teaching. That is those who have been appointed by the church for this task, elders or overseers, as Paul would call them in his letters to Timothy and Titus. That is specifically whom James is addressing. But as I mentioned earlier, given that James broadens out what he's about to say to everyone, I think there is at the very least an application for anyone who seeks to teach in any capacity. It is the responsibility of us all to heed the warning when we are teaching and explaining God's word to others. Now, there is likely a background to this that James is addressing in the Jewish churches that James is writing to. False teachers were not uncommon back then, as they are not uncommon today. You find multiple examples of this all over Scripture, in Jesus and in Paul and in John, as well as Peter's teaching. But perhaps the most 
akin to what James was probably addressing can be found in 1 Timothy 6-7, where he refers to certain persons who desire to be teachers of the law, but they have no understanding either of what they are saying, even though they like to make confident assertions. It's not surprising that people, particularly young men, desired to be teachers. In Jewish culture, the rabbi enjoyed a position of prestige and privilege. So much so that Jesus called them out for how much they loved their notoriety in Matthew 23, 5-7. So it would be unsurprising to find that this trend continues in early Christianity. It would be unsurprising that James would be addressing here those who like to think of themselves as great teachers, who like to make confident assertions about things, but in reality don't know what they're talking about. James's instruction here and the reason for the rest of this passage is probably due to these ones. In the broader context of chapter 3, you can see that James is possibly even still addressing these self-interested teachers who do not have lives that match the gospel, who are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. We'll look at that next week. In reality, they had no idea of what they were saying, and nor did they have any appreciation for the gravity of what they were doing. They just wanted the notoriety. And the trend continues today. Does it not? I'm not just talking about in certain circles where the preacher enjoys a paycheck of millions of dollars and lives in a mansion and jet sets all over the world and speaks to stadiums full of adoring fans. It would be easy to look at that and to think your heart is fine because you're not that bad. Brothers and sisters, especially brothers who aspire towards eldership, towards overseeing, which the Bible says is a good thing. What is it that draws you to this aspiration? Is there a healthy fear of the task that balances out your good desire for it? Too many pastors have gone down in a blaze of fire because they did not properly weigh the responsibility or assess their own hearts or continue to assess them. They recognize their gifting and ability and failed to keep their hearts in check and ward off the pride that inevitably rises from doing public ministry. John Knox, whom I mentioned earlier, he not only trembled when he got into the pulpit, but he was very reluctant to even go there in the first place. It was only when his pastor urged him to go into it and the church confirmed that they believed that he was suitable and gifted and and, and qualified that he finally gave in. And so once again, brothers who are aspiring, and I hope many, if not all of you do, even if you think that might be a while away, Knox's story is a good one to learn from. You might think you're qualified to be in ministry, but does your church? Do they see and recognize godly character and fruit 
Do they see and recognize humility and selflessness in you as much as they recognize your ability to teach? Because ultimately, it is the church that is given the task of appointing pastors and elders. And that leads us to another important application for us as a church. I know that we have encouraged you in this before, but please do not stop ensuring that your pastors are teaching you God's word. And I'm not just talking about me, the one who is up here most regularly preaching. I'm talking about all of our elders. All of them are given this task. And yes, this is, there is a natural trust that ought to exist between a church and its elders. And so approaching these conversations shouldn't be coming from a place of suspicion or antagonism. And your pastors are also redeemed sinners just like you. So we will have our own struggles in these conversations. Try to have them as graciously as possible and from a standpoint of overt recognition that we're on the same team. But whatever you do, do not ever neglect your responsibility in this. At our church, or if you end up moving to another church somewhere else, recognize that this is such a crucial part of your role as a member in your church. My desire and the desire of all our elders is that we continue to appoint more elders and that you would become better and better equipped to discern what a faithful, humble teacher of the word looks like. And please don't ever stop seeking clarification and solid biblical grounding for the things that we teach. We invite that. We desire that. And ultimately, it is your responsibility as the church to keep holding us to the word. And now I've made that even easier than ever for you to do that. There's a link in the weekly email that takes you to a spot where you can submit your questions or comments about the passage that we're going to be looking at on Sundays. Don't hesitate to use it. As a matter of fact, I would love it if you use that. So far, I've had zero responses. And if you're not on our weekly email list and you would like to be, let me know. Mind you, we already have plenty of motivation to teach well and to teach faithfully, knowing that we will be judged with greater strictness. And so pray for us in this. Pray for us that we faithfully teach you the word in every situation, in every context, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching in a class, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's in a small group, whatever it is. And pray for one another as we seek to do this together. This is one way that God continues to build us up as his church through his word. And as he does this, he sanctifies and matures us as his people, which brings us to point two, the wrestle of worldly words. The wrestle of worldly words. From verse 2 onwards, as I mentioned before, James now begins talking to all Christians. Why? Because we all stumble. And he now broadens the application of the power of the tongue to us all. Let's read verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James' little hinge statement 
he points out the different things that cause different Christians to stumble. And stumbling is a relatable picture here because uh, especially the Bible often talks about the spiritual life of a Christian as a walk. 2 John 6 is one example. And so James then zeroes in on this in a very specific way. Stumbling in what we say. As I mentioned, I think James is widening the net here and not just speaking about pastors, but all people. And here, he lays down the principle for the illustrations that come in the next couple of verses. If you can control your tongue, he says, then you can control your whole body. The tongue is of such great significance that it is reflective of the kind of self-control one has over their entire selves. And if a person can control it, he says, then they are perfect. I think James, he really is saying that such a person is truly perfect, without flaw. And yet the original Greek word behind this can also be understood to mean mature. There is that sense of the word too. And so just like he did in chapter 1, verse 4, James gives us a sense of growth towards maturity. But the final goal of that growth, the final growth of that maturity, the final goal of it is perfection. And that is ultimately grasped for us when God's salvation is completed at the end of our lives. The one who controls the tongue perfectly is able to control their whole self perfectly. Hence the illustrations in verses 3 and 4. Notice the similar language, particularly in verse 3, as James talks about the mouths of horses and the fact that the bits guide their whole bodies. Now, it might seem, uh, I don't know about you, but I tend not to think about horses and ships at the same time. That might seem strange to us. But back in James's day, it's actually not as uncommon as you might think. There were other writers in his time, like Plutarch, who used both of these together in the illustration. It was uh, most likely something that was kind of in the atmosphere, a phrase that people said. And the illustrations, they make sense, don't they? Whether it's uh, the bits in the mouths of horses or the rudders at the ends of ships, his point is clear. These very small components relative to the whole are able to guide and direct these very large entities. Even though uh, a very large ship in the Suez Canal had a rudder failure. In general, I don't know if it actually failed. I think it just didn't do what it was meant to do. In general, these little things guide these, uh, a big animal or ship, a small percentage of the total mass is able to control what happens. So it is with the tongue. As James says in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Notice the contrast at work here again. The tongue is a small member of the body, 
yet it boasts of great things. When I was a teenager, I was told that the tongue is the strongest muscle in the body relative to its size. Anyone heard that? Yet another example of why you should not listen to your mate next to you. It was only last week when I looked it up that I realized that that's actually a myth. It's not true. Apparently, most people say it's the jaw that's the strongest muscle in the body. Well, anyway. But you don't have to worry, friends, because that's not James's point. He's not talking about the physical kinds of things that our physical tongues can do. Even his use of the term boast there hints at the fact that he is talking about our speech. The tongue is so dangerous because of what it can say, not because of what it can lift. Let's keep reading from the second half of verse 5. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James uses yet another illustration, which again was not so uncommon in his day. A whole forest can be set ablaze by just a small fire. A tiny spark is all that's required. We don't know the terror of that as keenly up here in Darwin. But we're certainly aware of the devastation of bushfires to our fellow countrymen down south. The illustration seems to spark James's thoughts, which now move in the direction of theological truth. The tongue itself is a fire, a world of righteousness, of unrighteousness. Notice again, a whole world of unrighteousness is encapsulated in this tiny member of your body. James's point here seems to be that the worldly unrighteousness of the world is captured by the tongue. And it highlights the enormous potential destruction of it. And indeed, that's the point. The tongue can stain the whole body and set a whole person's course of life on fire. Its destructive potential is massive. The corruption power of the tongue is significantly larger than the size might indicate. Much like a small cup of uranium. James here writes the only other occurrence in the New Testament of the word Gehenna, which means hell, outside of the Gospels. And he does so to talk about it, not as the place of judgment, which is how Jesus most often uses it, but as the place of evil. Hell sets the tongue on fire because it influences for the worst. And now I don't think it's worth getting too worked up on how this works in terms of what James is trying to say. I'm not, not trying to give you a kind of metaphysical description of how hell and the tongue kind of works. Now James's point is simply that the tongue's destructive power finds its roots in evil. And as a result, it is more ready to level a city than to power one. Just think about that for a second. You see, this portrayal and understanding of the tongue is not new. 
as I've mentioned before earlier in this series, James is well acquainted with Old Testament literature, particularly wisdom literature. And wisdom literature has no shortage of calling out sinful speech. Let me give you a handful of examples. Proverbs 10.20, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. 1627, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. 2628, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. And this is just from the book of Proverbs. The Bible has no shortage of words displaying the power of words. How often, brothers and sisters, have you not handled your tongue with care. Have you considered the power of your tongue? Have you grasped the enormity of it? James has made it clear to us that not only do the things we say have an oversized influence on our lives, but they are also capable of enormous destruction. And we're not just talking about the kind of destruction that you and I are likely to think of when we consider fire. If you, I don't know about you, but when I think of, of that imagery, the fires of hell or, or, or fires setting a whole forest ablaze, that makes me think of things like rage and angry kind of speech. That is certainly in view, but James is talking here about anything that causes a person to stumble. Anything that can be classed as sinful speech is what can set a whole forest ablaze. And as verse 1 reminds us, this also includes false teaching as well as the kind of teaching that comes from wrong motives or hypocritical teachers. And so if that's the case, if it really is true that we have a kilo of uranium in our mouths, why are we not more careful? Why do we not take greater care about the things that we say? I'll tell you why. Because it's about far more than just what you say. Look at what Jesus says in, verse, in Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. When James speaks of the things that come out of our mouths, he's not suggesting that those words are somehow detached from our hearts and our minds. No, the speech that comes out of our mouths first originates in our hearts. Our hearts are the source, they are the root, they are the fount of our words. We'll see James make this explicit in verse 14, which we'll see next week. So even though we ought to be more careful with our words, what is of far greater importance is that we check the source of those words. This is so important because we could easily train ourselves to say the right thing while maintaining a cold and a hard heart. Perhaps you've had that experience when you were a kid. Mum and dad tell you, say sorry. And so you go and say sorry. 
And the reality is, you're not sorry at all. What would be the good of that? Saying something that is the opposite of your heart is like deactivating the launch sequence and then putting the launch codes back in your back pocket, ready to launch again. And the tongue is not only destructive to others, we can just as easily aim that warhead to ourselves. You might be familiar with the concept of self-talk. These days, the term is used to refer to the things we say to and about ourselves. In our era, where mental health struggles are more common and they are top of mind, one of the ways we've tried to help people is through positive self-talk. The government website Health Direct has a whole page dedicated to self-talk. And on it, they suggest four steps to help break the cycle. Be aware of what you're saying to yourself. Often it's negative. Ask yourself, is it true? Often it's not. Put your thoughts into perspective. So what? Then ask yourself, what is a more helpful thought? Now, that could be a very helpful process. Especially if you find it difficult to slow down and slow your thoughts down. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. But the problem is, it can only get you so far. Because all it can offer is positive thoughts that are based in, well, just positivity. Whatever is positive to you. Positive self-talk doesn't have to be anchored in reality or in truth. It just needs to be positive so that you can get yourself out of your negative mood. You just need a more helpful thought. Friends, Jesus offers so much more than just relative positivity. If you want your tongue to produce life and not death, even in your own life, you need to tame it with the truth. If you want your tongue to produce life and not death, even in your own life, you need to tame it with the truth. Brothers and sisters, how might we grow in this? I understand, believe me, I get how hard this is. To begin with, the first truth you need to recognize is your own sinful speech. Learn to identify when you are setting yourself as well as others ablaze with your words. Consider what the Bible says about the many ways that you can sin with your words and try to recognize them. Scripture is not silent about this. Let me just give you a few short, quick examples. Ways you can sin with your tongue, deceit, gossip, slander, boasting, strife or quarreling, sensuality, jealousy, enmity, divisiveness. And these are just a few from Romans 1 and Galatians 5. Four verses in total, five, whatever it is. It doesn't even include grumbling or angry words, which you'll find in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12 and a whole bunch of other places in Scripture. There is much for us to keep studying in God's Word about the kind of speech that brings life and the kind that brings death. Think about what Scripture considers to be sinful speech and ask yourself, when do those kinds of words come out of my mouth? 
When do those kinds of words flow out from my own heart? Which kinds do I struggle with the most? And after that, meditate on what was going on in your heart that gave rise to that speech. Why? Why did I say that? What was flowing from my heart when those words poured out? And remember, this applies to words directed at yourself as much as words directed to others. Are you believing lies about yourself that are not true? That are not things that God says about you? Was there a lack of contentment in Christ in your own life that made you want to indulge in juicy details of people's lives? Do you find yourself wanting to tear others down in order to build yourself up because your identity is not in Him, but in the things that you do, the things that you say? Do you lack charity and Christ-like love towards others which causes you to be impatient and more cutting towards them? Are you afraid of losing an argument because your pride takes a hit if you are proven wrong? Upon reflecting on these thoughts and attitudes of your own heart, repent of them and surrender them to Christ and ask His Spirit to change your heart. Brothers and sisters, wrestle with your worldly words. Wrestle with your worldly heart and tackle them with the word. Does that sound difficult? I'm not surprised. James isn't either. Let's read from verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. James uses yet another illustration here in verse 7, which recalls the language and events of Genesis 1. These classifications of animals reflect those that we see throughout Genesis 1. And it calls to mind verses 26 and 28, where God instructs Adam and Eve to have dominion over them. That's what James is alluding to when he talks about taming them. Once again, look at the scope of what James is saying. Every kind of animal. And yet here is one small member of the body that has somehow managed to escape the zoo. No human being, no human being can tame the tongue. And just in case you didn't have enough warnings about how bad it can be, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James is just piling on the descriptions and the images to really drive home the point. Compare these statements to what he said back, back in verse 2. There he said, if anyone does not stumble in what they say, then they are, what? Perfect. 
And yet here, he's saying that no human being can tame the tongue. I don't think James is intentionally being contradictory here. Verse 2 is true. If anyone can, then they really are perfect. And as I said, we grow in and strive for maturity. We endure trials. We persevere. We try to tame the tongue. We pursue that perfection. That's what James is calling us to. But the problem is, as we see in verse 8, nobody has or can tame the tongue perfectly. Except one. Only one person was able to tame the tongue. He was the perfect man who never stumbled. And we'll talk about him in our final point. Number three, the source of sanctified speech. If no human being can tame the tongue, if none of us, not you, not me, can perfectly tame it, where do we go? How can we even attempt speech that is sanctified? Speech that grows in maturity towards perfection. Let's read from verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Blessing and cursing. They are often seen in the Old Testament and are commonly seen together. Genesis 12.3 is one such example when God promises to Abraham that he will be a blessing to all nations. He will bless those who bless him and curse those who do not. Jesus picks up on the theme. He reverses the expectations in Luke 6.28 where he says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So generally speaking, to bless is to speak of and to desire the good of something or someone. And to curse is to do the opposite, to speak or to desire the worst for them. James here points out how double-tongued we can be in our speech. Like the double-minded person of chapter 1, you might recall, is the double-tongued person of chapter 3. To bless our Lord and Father and then turn around and curse those who are made in His image? That is wrong. And as James says, ought not to be so. James goes on in verses 11 and 12 with more illustrations to make the point. A spring cannot have both fresh and salt water. A fig tree does not produce olives and a grapevine doesn't produce figs. James is showing that blessing God and cursing people are two completely different kinds of speech. They don't belong in the same category. They don't belong in the same world. They don't belong in the same species. You might as well be expecting mangoes from a pawpaw tree. Do you see what he's saying here? If you think that both kinds of speech can come out of the same mouth, then you are sorely mistaken. They do not belong together. You cannot sing songs of blessing God on a Sunday morning and then go away and curse the, uh, your, your fellow image bearer and believe that it is okay and believe that that is fine. 
So it's worth us asking ourselves again, brothers and sisters, why? Why do we do this? Why do we come together and do exactly that? Declare amen with our lips. Lift our hands and our voices in song and in prayer. And then speak curses on other human beings who are made in His image, including ourselves. And the answer is there, isn't it? Check the source. What flows out of our hearts when we speak curses are our sinful desires and thoughts against others. You might be thinking, but but I don't curse. I don't even swear. And I certainly don't hire the local witch doctor to pronounce some kind of voodoo curse on my enemies. But think about what James has been saying all along. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He's referring here to all unrighteous speech, the kind that we talked about before, gossip, slander, all of those. Brothers and sisters, in order to change what is produced by the mouth, you need to change the source. You can't peel a mango and then try and cover it with pawpaw skins to say, look, here's a pawpaw. You need to actually go to a pawpaw tree to get pawpaws. In the same way, you can't just change your words and be more polite and think now that you've tamed the tongue. If you do that, all you have done is push the problem deeper into your own heart. It is the source of your words that must be transformed. How many times have you tried to positively self-talk your way out of your own sin without actually dealing with the root issue? How many times have you grumbled because you haven't gotten what you wanted? How many times have you avoided saying the right thing or the loving thing or the honorable thing or the charitable thing because you were motivated by your own self-interest and not the glory of God? How many times have you spoken rashly out of anger? How many times have you intentionally created rivalry, rivalry, spoken poorly about someone else because of your jealousy or because of your pride? Or told yourself lies and believed them because you don't think that what God says about you is true? How many times have you done any of that just this week? We know our tongues destroy We know our hearts stock the rocket fuel that launches the nukes. But how can we change that? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God has made it possible for you and for me to be saved from the curse of sin and have our hearts transformed. You see, not only are our tongues set on fire by hell, they are destined for hell, along with the rest of our body and soul because of God's righteous judgments on our sin. But the good news, the glorious news of the gospel is that we can be saved through the one who was a perfect man. Unlike us, unlike the ones who are not able to tame our tongues, he blessed our Lord and Father perfectly. And he deserved only blessing from everybody else. 
And yet instead, he was cursed by men. They beat him. They mocked him. They called for his crucifixion. And he was not only cursed by men. As Galatians 3.13 reminds us, Jesus became a curse for us so that we might know the blessing of salvation, the blessing of forgiveness and freedom. You see, it's when we look to the cross and the fact that Christ took all curses that were meant for us into himself that we can turn to others when we receive curses from them and instead of cursing in return, extend forgiveness and blessing towards them. How else could Jesus say to bless those who curse you and to pray for those who abuse you in Luke 6, 28? How else could Paul echo that in Romans 12, 14? Except by this incredible, marvelous work of the gospel. Jesus himself did that. He spoke the words of eternal life. And he opened the door to eternal life for all who choose to turn to him in repentance and in faith. Because he lived the perfect life of obedience that we never could. And he died as a perfect substitute for our sin on the cross. He did not stumble in what he said or in what he did. He was the perfect man. Friends, if you have not responded to Jesus by turning from your own sin and trusting in him for salvation before God, please do so today. I and other members of our church would love to talk to you about that. You see, it is only through him that we can have hope and assurance that one day we will be perfected when he returns. It is only through him that we have any hope at all that we might be able to mature in this life, in taming our tongues and changing our hearts. It's through the gospel that God ultimately reorients our hearts so that we can bless others and leave the cursing to God. We love, we forgive, we turn the other cheek, we bless those who curse and abuse us because, because Jesus received our curses upon himself. And because of that, we need not get our own revenge in our own words. When you are ready to speak ill of someone else or to cut them down with your words or utter lies or half-truths about them or about yourself in order to seek personal gain or try and make yourself feel better, ask yourself this question. Am I grasping Am I truly grasping in this moment? Am I believing in this moment that God has blessed me beyond my greatest imaginations in Jesus? Am I so full of the blessedness that comes through knowing Christ that it overflows even to those who curse and abuse me? Is my source of joy and contentment so deeply rooted in being saved by Him 
that I am able to bless others both in my heart and with my words. Regardless of whether it's blessing or fire and deadly poison that's coming back my way. Brothers and sisters, I know that this is a wrestle. But it is a wrestle that is only one as we treasure Christ above all else in our hearts. To tame your tongue is to tame your heart with the gospel. Jesus' redemption of our sin is our source of sanctified speech. When we look to his finished work on the cross, and when we see that he leads us by blessing those who cursed him, our hearts are transformed. And when we do that, we can use the uranium of our tongues for good rather than for evil. I'm not a fan of New Year's resolutions. But perhaps at the beginning of this new year, we can share one of Jonathan Edwards' own life resolutions. Resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less, upon no account, except for some real good. May we resolve whether aimed at ourselves or others, to turn our hearts and to use our tongues for good. It is the saved heart that produces words of life. Let me finish by giving you another handful of Proverbs that show you the flip side of what your tongue can do. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. 25.11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life. Blessings and curses. By His grace, how will you use your tongue for God's glory and our good? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our tongues are a restless evil, a world of unrighteousness, a fire ready to set a forest ablaze, a nuke ready to be launched. Lord, that humbles us And yet so often, God, we do not consider the devastation 
and potential ramifications of our words. So, Father, please, as we have heard this morning, by your Spirit, tame our hearts, tame our tongues, that we may use them for your glory and for life and good. In Jesus' name, amen.